Hello, everybody. This is Kevin Witham, and welcome to Season 3 of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. Jesus valued unity and prayed for it, that we may all be one. We believe unity is best achieved through relationships rather than beginning with disagreements over doctrine, practice, or ideology. We value the gathering, breaking bread, and sharing a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. We invite you to gather with another Christian outside your particular family of churches and tell others that unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and let's get started with another episode of the Common Ground Unity Podcast. Well, thank you for joining us today for another conversation. We've got a great guest uh, joining us for our Healthy Church series. We've been in this series for a number of podcasts, so uh, we're going to introduce our guest in just a moment. But I first want to introduce uh, our co-host today. Uh, Steve Staten is going to co-host this podcast with me. And you might remember, hopefully you, you heard episode 114, where Steve was a guest on that episode. Uh, he is a uh, organizational health consultant, and he has a website where you can learn more about services that he offers, stephenfstaten.com, and that is spelled S-T-E-P-H-E-N, uh, fstaten.com. And, and Stephen has a lot to offer as far as organizational health, and you may benefit from the work that he does. He was also not only a guest on our uh, episode a couple of podcasts back, but he's also been a guest on the Peacemakers Conflict Resolution webinar that we held. It's on our YouTube channel, and you can watch that and, and be blessed by that conversation. He has a master's in theology from Wheaton College and a master's in conflict management from Lipscomb University. Steve, welcome. Glad to have you joining with us today. Thank you. It's great to be back. It's an honor. Thank uh -huh. you. All right. Well, I'm going to introduce our guest today. We're excited to welcome back to Common Ground Unity, Randy Lowry. Uh, Randy and his wife, Rhonda, were guests way back on episodes 18 and 19 in the uh, early days of the Common Ground Unity uh, podcast. And Rhonda has been a guest individually, and now Randy is back. Dr. Lowry is the past president of Lipscomb University. He is now the chancellor at Lipscomb. Uh, Randy developed the Institute for Conflict Management at Lipscomb, and also prior to that, he uh, developed the Strauss Institute for Dispute Resolution at Pepperdine University, which is still operational today and blessing not only churches, but uh, organizations. So um, Randy has a great history in helping bring health to churches as well as organizations. So Randy, welcome back to the podcast. We're so glad to have you with us today. It is a great pleasure to be with you and to uh, know of the good work that you have been doing uh, for quite some time now. Uh, I think uh, bringing peace and bringing unity and having people think deeply about how we can be the unified group that God intended us to be uh, is worthy work. So thank you. Good to be here. Thank you, Randy. We're blessed to have you. Steve, why don't you kick us off? Okay. Randy, you're the pioneer, not only bringing the uh, programs to Pepperdine and Lipscomb, but you are known for anecdotal stories that people will say, this is how Randy handled this and how he handled that. And, and uh, I'm a direct beneficiary. My wife and I both uh, studied under you at Lipscomb University. She had a couple of specialized courses, one that you taught, I think, for four sessions. 
And uh, I made a decision to go into conflict management, which has really transcended into organizational health over time. After being about halfway in the program, I thought, I've got to do this. This is who I am. This is the way that I'm wired. And I've recruited other people to Lipscomb to be in that very same program. And so uh, I admire you. I respect you. And uh, the materials that I've learned are ubiquitous to human nature and all sorts of organizations, but most specifically around congregational health. I think that I, I just wish I knew things 25 years earlier, 40 years earlier. So my question right now for you is tell us about your journey, how you got to where you were to start the Strauss Institute and then to go to Lipscomb. Well, early on, I wanted to be a lawyer, and I'm not sure where that originated, but it was a, a lifelong uh, quest. I uh, went to law school after getting a master's degree at Pepperdine, uh, was uh, general counsel for a Methodist university in Oregon, then went back to Pepperdine as a professor. And it was in that time period that I began to see that there might be a connection between my love and belief in law and my faith. And where those two came together was this area where uh, we seek to resolve conflict uh, perhaps in a different way. And so we started, as you know, the Institute of Pepperdine, 1986. Uh, it was probably uh, three or four years too early. But uh, then when the field and the world caught up with us, we were uh, comfortably a leading part of it, which was a nice place to be. And since then, uh, it has been one of the more profound changes, I think, ever in our legal system in Los Angeles. Uh, when I arrived there at Pepperdine, the delay in the court system was over six years from the time you filed a lawsuit until you could have it resolved. Uh, today, it's about 18 months because there are 85,000 cases mediated in that court system this year. And so this idea that we could resolve conflict perhaps more respectfully, humanely, um, collaboratively, uh, was an idea that uh, found its root in the legal system. But of course, when you think about faith, you think about some of the same realities. Uh, we have conflict. We have differences. We struggle in communities. Uh, how could that same set of skills uh, reflect uh, Christ and reflect the people we're called to be? So it was just a wonderful blend. Uh, there was a detour being a college president for 16 years. Uh, and people say, well, you left the dispute resolution field. And I said, no, not really. If you have 6,000 college <laughs> students and three or 400 faculty, uh, as the president, you're just a mediator all day, every day. And uh, now, uh, Kevin, I've moved uh, from being chancellor at Lipscomb to uh, a new position that I hope is uh, only part-time, but I've become settlement counsel for a national law firm, and I'm having a really an interesting time on the plaintiff side of the law trying to bring this set of skills uh, along with justice to people who have been harmed in usually uh, fairly egregious ways. So uh, I'm working again for a Houston law firm, working around the country, but trying to be uh, one with that mediative spirit uh, as well. Fantastic. Okay, so I have a question uh, that's really important in my work. Uh, there are individuals in congregations who are really good 
at resolving their own conflicts, you know, showing up in the proper place and also then helping others. And I kind of view those people like the individuals in the system that Jethro and Moses talked about, Exodus 18, Deuteronomy 1, where you have people at different levels of being able to help out the community of Israel, uh, some are over tens, fifties, hundreds, and so forth. So when I identify those individuals at the end of my consultation, it becomes really a, a key to the success of that community going forward. Here's the question. What are the traits of somebody who's able to resolve their own conflicts uh, very well, at least on their side of it? and then also to help others. What's your thoughts about my observation? Well, I think there are attributes that probably follow a lot of professional paths. You know, if we looked at therapists, they probably have some attributes generally in common. Uh, I I think uh, a pastor or a minister at a large church, they probably have some attributes uh, generally in common. And I think there is, in a community of faith, there are those people who are great listeners. Uh, There are those people who are sensitive and empathetic to others. And then if there's someone who has those characteristics, but also can be a little bit creative, uh, all of a sudden, people go to them whether they have an office or a title or not because people need to be listened to, they need to be respected and empathized with, and they also need help sometimes getting through the day or getting to the next day. And so, uh, uh, you know, I've often thought that, uh, you know, when we get ready to select elders, and that's probably common in uh, Restoration churches, you know, the smartest thing for us to do would be to look around and figure out who's already doing that. Uh, who already has concern for the spiritual development of the people, who already is a go-to person for a sense of wisdom and guidance. I mean, that really is someone that's set up to be moved into what we might call an office, and uh, that might be uh, a real appropriate set of skills. Thank you. Randy, in, in the life of the church, one of the reasons we're in this Healthy Church series and particularly talking about resolving conflict, is there's been these high-profile cases of churches that have, have been very unhealthy, although they've been led often by leaders who are very prominent, very charismatic. And sometimes churches, you know, they seek out um, and reward, you know, high-performing, charismatic leaders who, who might bring, you know, some great value to churches but and, and even numerical growth, but perhaps they produce at times, uh, not all of them, but some very unhealthy cultures. What advice would you give to church leaders that are now dealing with just such a leader, perhaps, or an unhealthy leadership culture? Well, I'd be happy to have both of you uh, answer that question as well, because you each have a set of experiences that uh, bring a perspective on it. Uh, But I have had those moments, like you have had, where uh, there's a a, a very successful minister. uh, and, And I think that one of the uh, things, perhaps a psychologist could tell us more, but the very elements that make them the successful minister of a large organization or a powerful church or uh, an effective community, uh, some of those elements are the very things that cause them great challenge in other aspects of that same ministry. 
So in other words, you know, to be the minister of a church, I think you have to have a certain amount of confidence. I mean, you're going to say, I'm the one that will stand up and tell you all how to live your lives every week. Okay, well, that takes a certain amount of confidence. But that confidence also is something that can get in the way of a level of sensitivity or empathy that you might need to have to help get through the week. Um, so there are these attributes that say, sure, yeah, you need someone who's confident. Sure, we need someone who uh, has a sense of vision. And sure, we need someone who can uh, think beyond even where the people are today. I mean, there are all these attributes of, of a visionary leader, and they have this other side that if you're not really careful, uh, you'll be uh, creating uh, some, some tragedy along the way on the other side. And then I think what does happen often is someone who has been a minister for a long time, you know, somebody establishes their congregation, they're there for 10 or 15 or 20 years. I do think we get to a point where it evolves so much around them and has for so long that it's awfully hard to figure out the transition from them. And uh, you know, not not to blame them because, you know, I've had ministers like that say, well, you know, if, if I didn't do this, the church wouldn't exist. You know, if I wasn't, then this, and they're probably right to some degree, but they also are perhaps a bit blinded to the fact that um, they won't always be the leader. <laughs> I mean, there will be a time where they're not the minister of that church, even though it's hard to convince them of that. I had one moment where the church called and said, uh, you know, we had the retirement party for our minister, and uh, he's been a long-term minister. We love him dearly. Uh, then he came back to work, and we don't know what to do. <laughs> I said, what? And he said, literally, he came back to work and was in his office on Monday morning after we celebrated his retirement. And, uh, mm. well, part of that was because he didn't know what else to do. Right. I mean, he'd been going to that office for yeah. 25 years and, and he'd been shepherding that flock and he'd been involved in their lives. And it wasn't until we uh, found an alternative group of activities for him that he could mm -hmm. figure out how to move on and then the congregation could move on. So I, I think and being a college president, if I was somewhat confessional, uh, you know, I as a college president would have had the same uh probably dynamics. You know, you got to be pretty confident to be a college president, but you also have to be very, very sensitive to a community of 6,000 people. It's not easy to do both of those things every minute of every day. Uh, and there are times where, especially in, you know, a moment of crisis or something, leadership really has to say, this is how we're going to do it. But we're not always in crisis and a much better leadership model most of the time is to say, and how can we do this together? Mm. And so I think we just keep working at it. Someone shared with me one time, another college president, he said, it wasn't until my seventh year I realized I was not going to pull this off by myself. Mm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> now what? <laughs> you know, he said, I can't work hard enough. Uh, I, I can't give enough. I can't be, I can't do it myself. Well, I don't think anyone ever asked him to do it himself, but you can see a strong leader 
could kind of decide that was the way it was. Mm-hmm. And so there's then a different leadership style that probably comes after that. So that's well, a that, long answer. Why don't you folks chime no, in? No, that, I, I think that is a, a very important answer because it, it takes us from me to we. You know, we are in this together. And I think for those strong leaders, whatever the organization, be it the church or, as you say, a college president, it, it's letting others into your life that you bring around you, that you you share in some respects, uh, that, that work, that load, and you're humble enough to seek input and then to have leaders who are confident enough to speak into that person who might, uh, be grasping for too much of the power and not letting others in. That's an excellent answer and, uh, much appreciated and, and through experience, uh, appreciated. Okay, I have a question related to a dysfunctional leadership team of a large church. All the characters are really, all things considered, except for the dysfunction, great people. But they tend to have a dynamic where a few people make all the decisions before the meeting or after the meeting, but not really in an open and forthright way. You just kind of figure out over time by high stakes decisions that went wrong in confusion about how those decisions were made. And the symptoms start to be turnover of staff, people leaving. How would you counsel that leadership team to sort out a new cultural dynamic? Well, let me step back a little bit and see if I can come right back to you. It it seems like we spend a tremendous amount of time trying to get the right answer. In other words, we're trying to get the substantive answer that we think is right. We don't often in organizations spend as much time focused on the process, how we're going to get to the right answer. And I believe strongly if we spent a lot more time on the process, we'd find that when we got to the answer, there would be far more acceptance of it. So one has to step back and say, how do we as a church make decisions? Uh, now, that, that's something that you as a consultant, Steve, or others could come in and say, there are a lot of choices here. There are a lot of ways to do it. And frankly, if we brought 10 different churches together of 10 different church backgrounds, they'd probably have eight different ways that they do it. So we, we have a lot of variety, but we need to go there first and say, how are we going to make decisions? Yeah. Now, if we can figure out how we're going to make decisions, uh, then I would hope there would be some level of input, some level of collaboration, uh, some level of then ownership as those decisions come out. Uh, there's a little, uh, little thing we work with often that talks about to be supportive, people have to be satisfied in three ways. They have to be satisfied with the product. They have to be satisfied with the process and they have to be satisfied with the people or really how they're treated. If they're satisfied, they don't be thrilled, but if they're satisfied in those three areas, they probably will be supportive and uh, not get in your way. If they're dissatisfied in any one of those, then you know we called it conflict aftermath. You think you've got it all resolved, but they're going to come back and get you and you don't know when, and you don't know where, and they're not doing it necessarily in an angry way. They just haven't been satisfied, and they have 
to search for that satisfaction. The irony is, I think, is that if people are satisfied with the process, so in other words, how we got there had integrity, okay? We knew how we were going to make this decision. We knew the path. We knew who would ultimately make it, all of that. And if I'm satisfied with how I was treated, very personally, but how I was treated in this. In other words, I got a chance to be heard, even if you didn't agree with me. Uh, and I was respected and I was that kind. Then all of a sudden, I can accept a product that's far less satisfactory. I can accept a product that's less satisfactory because I've been satisfied in those other areas. But so I, I think the call to a leader is to say, you know, you're going down this path and here's a new minister you're selecting or here's a change in whatever. Uh, let's think about how we're going to get there, the process, and, and we'll get to the substance. And if the process is right, we'll have more support for the substance when we get there. Does that respond? That is, that's great wisdom and it's fantastic. I, I appreciate that. I would actually add to it when the congregation knows about these processes, um, it's encouraging. It builds a sense of trust, you know, in a general sense, knowing. And then when new people are coming in, on be, being onboarded to not only the process, but how they got there, because uh, there's some institutional legacy wisdom in there. We had a few bad decisions back in 2010, and this is what happened. And we lost $800,000 on why the pastor decided to be the general contractor, and it was not a good choice. And and so, therefore, this is how we make decisions today. And um, But anyway, very, very helpful. And you know well that that question becomes much more complex in a more diverse community. Uh, you know, if we have a group of, if we have a restoration church that's uh, one ethnic group and has been in that town for the last 40 years, generally undisturbed, <laughs> you know, people will have joined it or not joined it, but that homogeneity of that group uh, will provide a certain kind of safety and uh, a peace for a long, long time. But most of our churches are less and less like that. And so if we take the same congregation and over the last 10 years, um, the neighborhood around it has changed. The population of the church has changed ethnically. Uh, we have different expectations about the professionalism or education of staff, on and on. Now, all of a sudden, we're in a completely different situation. And that diversity right. is going to make leadership and decision-making much, much more difficult. Let's talk a little bit about that, Randy. Um, in, in today's church environments, organizational environments, how important is having a uh, diverse combination of gender, race, age, uh, and, and position at play? How, how does it complicate things potentially? And how do you navigate some of the difficult conversations when that diversity exists? Well, I think it it, we may go back and uh, you know start with is it John seventeen where Jesus has his prayer for uh, himself and his believers and then all of us you know centuries later and you know the prayer is pretty amazing because he could pray for anything he wanted to right <laughs> but he prayed that you know we would be unified and uh, it was interesting because there's a difference between unity and uniformity. Uh, uniformity is us all being alike, um, and unity is 
some kind of relationship where we are called to something larger than ourselves so we have a greater ability to to walk this path together and so uh you know i don't know why god made people that don't agree with me i mean that that's kind of crazy isn't it because i have all the right answers and if they would just listen and agree you know i, I had a guy one time i was sharing in some kind of lecture situation and i said that uh you know, unity is not uniformity. And, and I went on to say that, you know, there's no way a church can find unity if it insists upon uniformity. And this guy came up to me, he said, you know, Dr. Lowry, you are wrong. I said, what? He said, you are absolutely wrong. He said, I go to a church and we all agree on everything. <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, I want to hear at least the rest of this story. And he says, I go, he says, it's taken us a long time. It's taken us years to get there, but all of us agree on everything. I said, really? And I finally asked the obvious question. I said, well, how many are there in your church? He said, there are 12. And he said, we all agree on everything. And I said, okay. And I said, let me ask you this question. How many would your auditorium seat? He said, oh, it seats about 400. He said, but we meet in the kitchen on Sunday morning because we can't afford to heat or air condition the auditorium. <laughs> now, you know, that has to make you laugh initially. And then, you know, we have this wave of sadness, I think, that comes behind our laughter saying, really? I mean, is that, is that what we think God intended? And I think especially in restoration churches, we have, uh, you know, we, we have a high view of Scripture, which I think we would, uh, we would celebrate, right? We are a Bible-believing people. Um, we also have a high view of believing we can understand Scripture, all of us, <laughs> no matter <laughs> what our education or experience might be. Uh, and then we have a fairly high degree of intolerance. <laughs> so you put those three together and we have uh, a good bit of chaos, don't we? Mm. Uh, and um, I, I had a Baptist tell me one time, and, and it was interesting that it was a Baptist that was talking about this, but he said, you know, you folks in the Church of Christ, I know two things about you. And I said, well, what are they? He said, one is you're a Bible-believing people. I thought, well, that's not bad. And then he said, yeah. And the other one is, you know how to fight unlike any group I've ever seen. Oh. And well, now, as a Baptist, I'm not sure he's completely free of uh, some schisms, challenges along the way. But uh, I think he did have a point. You know, we have this attribute that's wonderful. And then we have another attribute that isn't so wonderful uh, because of uh, how we have believed. So, you know, it seems to me if we're going to be more diverse, and that could be gender, that could be ethnic, that could just be uh, different parts of the country where we grew up or education. The question, again, is a process question. How are we going to deal with our diversity? Uh, and, and we need to spend a lot of time working on that and believe that that's a fairly godly thing. 
I mean, I don't know why God made all those people that are unlike me, but he did. And uh, so having that be the reality, I better think about how we're going to deal with what is something in order to capture that unity that Jesus was praying for. And if you go to that passage and you read it carefully, you know, Jesus told us why he was praying for that. And I can't quote it exactly, but something to the effect of, you know, I pray that they would be one, just as you and I are one, so that the world will know you sent me. Mm. This is not so the potluck on Friday night will be comfortable for us. Uh, (laughs) Unity is not so we have easier elder meetings. It is the most, in a sense, evangelical thing we could do. If we want people to be drawn to what we believe, well, he's saying you people ought to act and live differently and that's what will draw people to this story we believe in. Hmm. That's that powerful. Oh, it makes a great deal of sense, Randy. You know, so much of the New Testament is, is written to teach us to love, to bear with. Uh, Romans 14 means nothing if we all see everything alike and, and can't have unity within some diversity. And yet we have this mindset that, that you need to see everything as I, I see it. And that's why I think we probably have a lot of churches now across the nation with 12 people occupying auditoriums or kitchens um, that, that'll hold far more. So that, thank you for that wisdom. I think there's another aspect of it, if we, if we have time. I think that uh, something else that has happened is that uh, we have this movement or mobility in our country that's also in our churches. And so, you know, the group that got along so well together for 20 years and stayed together and worked in that community and raised their children together, all of that, it just doesn't happen, at least in urban areas anymore. Hmm. When I was an elder, I was an elder for eight years. And at one point we were talking about an event and we were talking about how to, I don't know, make some kind of announcement and be sensitive to the fact that that event uh, is part of our history. And then we asked the question, we said, well, how many people in the church were even here, even know about it? And when we really <laughs> looked at it, we realized we're only 20% of the church that even knows what we're talking about Yes, <laughs> because they yes. come and go, right? And uh, I was talking to the pastor of a large community church in Southern California, and I said, how do you use Matthew 18? I'm just interested as a church, you know, we have Jesus teaching that if you have conflict, you ought to go to somebody. If that doesn't work, take someone else. And finally, you know, use the body, the church body to, to, uh, to work it out. And he said, well, I can never use Matthew 18. <laughs> and I thought that was fascinating. Here's a minister saying, there's a portion of the Bible I can never use. Okay, got mm-hmm. it. So why can't you use it? He said, because I have 5,000 people at my church. Okay. He said, uh, there will be 2,000 people there on Sunday morning that weren't there last week and won't be back next week. Mm. How could I use Matthew 18 that depends upon people being in relationship? I'm in Southern California, and this thing is different every single week. And so that mobility that is uh, a part of us uh, makes it harder to have the depth of community so when something serious happens, 
we have the reservoir of community to draw on and resolving. Well, I don't know that I've given enough thought to how our mobility has transformed things. The turnover in congregations is remarkable when you sit down and really study. And I think we work with some assumptions that the church we're in today is very much like that congregation was 20 years ago. And that just isn't the case. But that's a that's a profound truth to, to wrestle with. Hmm. So, so Randy, I have a question. Uh, in 2010, August, I had my first course at Lipscomb, Survey of Conflict Management. And I learned two metaphors in that course that I'll never forget and have, have stayed with me and I've used professionally. The first one came out of Harvard, uh, Go to the Balcony. And it's about seeing yourself from outside of yourself, watching and saying what another you would tell you for how you are acting and behaving in a conflict and whatever. And so it's, it's about being self-aware and learning how we come across. But the other one was go below the line. I think sometimes going to the balcony too allows you to take a deep breath. I mean, it allows you to, right. to get away from the moment uh, long enough that you can get back in touch with who you are and your values and all of that. But that's right. It's a great phrase uh, that uh, came out of one of those great books at Harvard. Yeah, Getting to Yes it was the book. Uh, and But your the phrase that you've made popular and the concept behind it that was attributed to you, go below the line. I don't even want to describe it. I want you to unpack it for us because it's one of those statements that other students I've talked to, they'll say, yeah, but did you go below the line? Let's talk about what that means. It simply recognizes that uh, there are three things in a moment of conflict, usually. One is there's an, the identification of an issue. And an issue is really just, you know, what it is we're arguing about or we're talking about. Issues are pretty easy to define. People define them quickly, you know. I'm mad about or I'm irritated that or I'm concerned. And they can identify what the issue is. And what typically happens, and I think part of this is our Western American mentality, is we very quickly take positions on the issue. Okay, so whatever the issue is, let me tell you how I view it. And of course, if the other side views it the same way, we don't have any conflict. It's only when the other side views it differently that we have conflict. Now, if that's all we put into the conversation, identifying the issue and taking positions, we only have a limited number of choices. I can convince you I'm right. You can convince me you're right. We can compromise some way, or we can escalate it. And so we sometimes begin saying, well, you know, I'm right. And if you don't agree with me, well, I'm even more right. And I'm going to do this. Well, I'm going to do, and we start escalating this. Uh, and we escalate it to the point where it's pretty ridiculous or expensive uh, or harmful. And that phrase that you're talking about is one that I came up with just when I was trying to draw this graphically. I said, if you draw a line underneath the two position words, what's there? And what's there, you know, I think we most commonly call interest. Psychologists would call them needs. But they're those things that drive us and motivate us. They're the things that cause us to take our positions. And I think the, uh, the power of that is that the conversation 
can change. If I'm talking about what we each need or what we each are motivated by, we'll talk very differently than if we're trying to convince each other that our position is right. And if we can get that conversation, then all of a sudden uh, the creativity that is there all along can come into play. So go back. This will be going back, you know, 30 years in our fellowships. But, you know, we had these worship wars over, you know, what songs we were going to sing at church, right? And we've largely, I guess, figured that one out some way. But it, it was, you know, stereotypical. It was older folks wanted to sing these great and glorious hymns. Younger folks wanted to sing all these songs they learned at camp last month. And, uh, you know, you bring that into a worship thing and nobody likes each other's music. And so we did two things that were crazy. One is uh, the elders were willing in a church to decide that. Absolutely crazy. You know, each side presented their position and lobbied their favorite elders. And now the elders on Wednesday night are going to sit there for three or four hours and decide what we're going to do on Sunday morning, knowing full well that whatever they decided, there would be a winner and there would be a loser. And all they would now do is deal with that conflict next Wednesday night, right? I mean, that was not a good way to do it. And I think we have a completely wrong view of eldering that says there's a hierarchy and every decision is made on Wednesday night by that group of elders. I don't think that's biblical. Uh, and so if you've got these folks with this different group view of church music, the question I would ask is, what would happen if they talked to each other? Okay. Now, and, and most people would be scared to death, right? Oh, we can't, we can't let sister so-and-so and that young person get together. Uh, you know, he's going to be mean to her and she's not going to be patient with him. And so the best thing for this is for us to decide. I don't think so. The best thing is to get them together and in a safe way, let them share why they've taken the position they have. And what if, just hypothetically, what if she said something like, oh, great hymns, you're, you're too young to even understand them. And we never sing this one very much, Abide With Me. But when we sing that song, you just need to know that, you know, I'm probably there with a tear running down my face because that was sung at my daddy's funeral. And that was sung at my granddaddy's funeral. And I know it's a slow song and I know you don't like it, but I just want you to know that whenever we can sing it, it's really a touching moment for me. Now, you may think our young people are so obnoxious and obstinate, they could not be touched by that. But I think our young people are such that they would see their grandmother in her, and they would become the advocate for singing Abide With Me every now and then. And I think on the other hand, if the young person was there saying, look, you know, I, I know you don't like our songs, uh, but, you know, frankly, we learned these songs in the summer at camp, and then we don't sing them for another year unless we get to sing them, you know, in church occasionally. And, you know, I want to invite my people to church. I want to invite my friends, but they don't know those old songs you sing. They, but they do know some of these songs because they've been at camp and they've been at the youth thing on Saturday. And, and boy, if we could just sing some of those, they could be a part of church. Now, do we think she is so out of touch that she wouldn't want the young people in church bringing their friends? 
or might not she become the advocate for that happening? And all we're doing there, and that's a simplistic kind of moment, but it split a lot of churches. <laughs> but it's a simplistic moment. All we're saying is the conversation might be different. And when the conversation is different and we're understanding each other's interests, what's driving and motivating us, I think there is a greater potential to be Christ-like in how we relate to each other and much, much more tolerant in what we can see could happen. Does that make sense? So the, the phrase yeah. is simply go blow the line. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a great phrase. And it's, it's the door to a third way thinking. There's, there always is a third way on these not essential doctrine issues. Um, you know, a big topic for this kind of uh, look would be some people want to be in a house church mode. Some people want to be in big church and some people would like to rotate. And, you know, and it requires a lot of adaptability, requires important conversations about taking care of people. It, and it also depends on the particular branch of the Stone Campbell or evangelical world that somebody's in. But there are times that people can't even have the conversation because it's about power and control and contribution and so forth. But getting people to have that below the line conversation of why is that important to you? Tell me what you're thinking. And for both sides on that particular issue to do that. But worship music and format for meeting on Sundays are not the only two places <laughs> where going below the line is helpful. Well, I think you're right on that. And, and again, that's a... A, a decision, you know, if you want to think about an important decision for elders, an important for decision for elders is how are we going to guide this diverse group of people who feel called to be a part of a community when we know that there are challenges along the way? Answer that question for me and work on that question because these other things are, are going to come and go. Uh, I, I had a moment at uh, Pepperdine. Uh, you all have Pepperdine connections, I'm sure. And I had a moment at Pepperdine where I was late getting into a class. Somebody else was teaching. And uh, I opened the door of the classroom. The class is filled up. There's only one chair. And, uh, uh, it, you know, in fact, you know, it was a little different than I'm sorry. I was teaching. There was a guy that came in and there was only one chair. And we had this awkward moment where I'm teaching. He has to walk all the way down one side, all the way across the back row, and all the way to that empty seat. And uh, after the class uh, that I taught on conflict resolution, uh, the guy came up to me and said, you know, you don't know what went on in your class, do you? And I said, well, you know, not, not completely. He said, well, he said, you know, God sure has a sense of humor. He said, uh, I opened the door to your class on conflict resolution, and there was only one seat available, and I couldn't even see who was sitting on each side of it. So I walked all the way down the side, all the way across the back, and sat down next to the guy who was on the other side of a church split years ago. And he said it was years ago, and all of a sudden we're both in this class on conflict resolution together, sitting next to each other. And he, he said, you know, the amazing thing was we went to a, have a cup of coffee afterwards, and we sat there at coffee trying to remember what the dispute was about. Mm. 
Mm. <laughs> <Don't think laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it had been 20 years ago. They knew they'd split the church. They knew they were all. But it's 20 years later, folks. You know, what, what drives us to passion and craziness today is not going to be what we're dealing with five and 10 years from now. And if we could take a deep breath and we could say, let's put even this in a little bit of perspective and manage it carefully and get through it, uh, this isn't the only moment we're going to have. Thank you. Randy, um, your wife, Rhonda, has done a lot of work in spiritual formation and and shared some things on our podcast. And you've done so much uh, pioneering work in Christian conflict management. How do these two uh, intersect? How do they support one another? Well, I asked her that last night. I saw your question. (laughs) I said, Rhonda, hey, they got a question. This is your area, not mine. Um, and so we had a little bit of a, a discussion. Um, you know, She said, and I thought this was interesting, and I may not say it exactly right, but she said, you know, really the trouble begins when we try to be God, uh, when we decide that, you know, we will be God, we will know what's right. We will manage the situation and everybody else. We will, you know, there's a lot of of that. And she says, really, spiritual formation is that exercise and that practice uh, where, you know, we try to hold back from being God and realize that our uh, position is is a different position. And uh, in a sense, one might say, a lot of her work is very internal to the person. She's thinking about fasting and meditation and prayer, and and she's trying to mold herself in this formative way to be like uh, to be like God. Most of my work is external. I mean, it's what people do with each other, as opposed to a discipline that happens internally, and. Uh, I think there is a relationship, and that is um, if I was able to be formed more spiritually, it might affect how I deal with people externally. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm. Absolutely. And, and, uh, you know, I, I learned something that was a difficult lesson just a few weeks ago. In my retirement, I've uh, become a friend to someone who was a heroin addict for uh, many, many years, decades. And he's been clean for about three years. And he told me that he'd never had a mentor before. And, you know, asked me if we could have coffee and we could talk. And so I'm completely out of my element here. And I said, sure, uh, I'll try to do my best. And uh, so we have coffee and uh, I'm learning far more from him than I am sure he's learning from me. Uh, and my lessons from him are not easy lessons. Uh, he said, you know, he said, I was on the street. I can tell you all the nights I should have died. Uh, I can tell you where I stole things and why I stole things. I mean, he's got 20 years of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, people give me money. He said, people would always walk up and give me money. He said, but that's not what I needed. <laughs> I said, what do you mean it's not what you needed? You don't have anything to eat. He said, well, yeah, but he said, that's not really what I needed. What I needed was to have people who would listen to me. Mm. And I go, what? 
He said, nobody listens to those who are on the streets. And I thought, boy, how interesting. And then it was just a few weeks later, I'm in a, a fast food restaurant. There's obviously a homeless guy there. Uh, I actually thought I was pretty good in walking up and saying, you know, can I buy you dinner? The guy says, no, I've, I bought my dinner. And I walked away. And then I remembered my friend. And so I walked back over and sat down with this homeless guy, and we talked for 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Now, all I'm trying to say there is if I was a better person internally, I could be a better person externally. If I was more godlike as a person, I could be a better member of a community. So I think there is a connection there somewhere. I'm just not an expert on the first part. Well, you said that well. It seems seems to be, doesn't it, that uh, the, the the way we act needs to flow from who we're becoming and that, that being transformed into the likeness of Christ ought to create within us a desire to, to better resolve conflict, to bear with people longer, to show greater patience. And so those two just go hand in hand. I think you said that very well. Um, the internal directs the external. If it's just external, it's just a set of skills you can learn, but your, uh, your motivations might be for your gain or for something selfish rather than, you know, Christ-like results and, and resolve. So I was doing a training program one time for an insurance company. Uh, and so it's a completely secular environment. I've got 40 or 50 people there doing two or three days of negotiation training. And uh, something happened at the end of it that I consider a tremendous compliment. Uh, and and it's not that I'm all that good, but it was interesting because this woman came up and she said, uh, I don't know who you are. Now, this is after two days in a completely secular insurance company world. She says, I don't know who you are, but I think you're either a Baptist pastor or a Mormon. <laughs> I said, well, okay, uh, what are you talking about? And, she, and it was interesting. She said, well, I, I can't quite identify it. I just heard some things in how you said things. Mm. And I thought, interesting. I wonder if God even can use me in a completely secular way where I can't really overtly declare this, this, or that. But could it be that he could work through me so at least, uh, you know, it was set out there some way? I thought Mm. that was kind of interesting. Very interesting. People are listening to us and uh, would like to hear, I think, um, that. On the other hand, I had a guy come up to me in Nashville one time, and he said, I love Lipscomb, love what you're doing, love what you're doing at the prison with the women. I love what you're doing with this ministry downtown. He said, I just wish you weren't so Christian. Mm. <laughs> well, I don't know how to handle that one. I, that's oh. kind of who we are. <laughs> oh, well, you, you hope those things become the things Christians are known for, then maybe some other things, right? <laughs> but, your, your right, question is right. good because there, I'm sure there is a connection more profound than I've been able to articulate it, but there's something related to the internal that allows us perhaps uh, to be more effective in community. Well, Randy, thank you. That yeah. excellent answer. This whole conversation, I think, has been of great value, and I know that people that listen will be blessed 
Um, we're, we're all wanting to see our churches be healthy. We don't always know the correct paths to get there. We've had certain uh, roads where, where the ruts are pretty deep. We've done things certain ways for a long time, but we can learn new ways. And uh, this conversation, I think, will, will contribute in, in some great ways to that. So we really appreciate your being with us. Kevin, can I share one last story? Oh, I'd love for you we to. Have time? Yes. Uh, this, I think, would, uh, would be an admonition and something we, uh, we could all join in. Uh, it happened a number of years ago in Africa. I was asked to deal with some difficulty between some of uh, the Restoration churches in one of the countries there. And uh, the intervention, as Steve would understand, this one went on for about 10 days. And it was three or four days into it, I was worn out. Uh, we got meeting after meeting, conversation after. And finally, I go out in this hotel and I sat down on a couch. And I never will forget it. I sat down and then this elderly Kenyan gentleman who'd been a part of some of the conversations walks up and then sits down next to me. And uh, I didn't know him. He, he was elderly. I don't know if he was particularly educated in a Western kind of way. But, but I, I knew it was a moment I'd better listen uh, because there was just some sense that uh, something was going to be said. And, and he said two things to me, and I think they might be helpful to our listeners. One, he said, you know, you Americans, uh, you deal with conflict differently than we Kenyans do. I said, well, okay, uh, you know, tell, tell me about that. He said, well, he said, for us, conflict, conflict is like weeds in the field. And, um, you know, you've got your field, you want to plant it, and there are weeds out there. He said, uh, uh, you Americans, you just bring in new topsoil and cover the weeds and then plant the field. He said, we Kenyans know you've got to first pull the weeds. Mm. And I thought, boy, <laughs> there's some wisdom there. Yeah. And uh, in terms of conflict, there's also hard work uh, that demands a lot of us in order to prepare this ground so that our field, whether it's spiritual or otherwise, can grow. And then he said something I didn't understand. He said, you know, we, we need to have your help get this resolved because we need to walk together. And I, I didn't have any idea what he was talking about. And I'm from Los Angeles, right? The freeways have, you know, 12 lanes going every direction at 80 <laughs> miles an hour. What do you mean walk together? And it wasn't until two or three days later, I'm in a Jeep and we're driving through this city and there are thousands of people walking. And as I realized that scene, I knew exactly what he was saying. He was saying, if people are getting along, they can walk together. If people are in conflict, one walks behind the other. And he was saying, look, on our journeys, we need to walk together. And on the journey of the Christian faith in today's world, we need to be able to walk together. If we can walk together, it's still a difficult journey at times, but it'll be a whole lot more supportive uh, and the community will be so much deeper. Uh, we need to walk together. And so uh, I hope something is said here and certainly the work you folks do and others uh, that that we can learn that uh, and with God's help uh, be able to walk together.
Boy, that thank you, Randy. That, that's a great closing thank story. Thank you very much, yes. We need to walk together. What a great thought to, to kind of leave our listeners with. Will you have a little fun with us for a moment before we get sure. away? Fire away. Um, all right. We want to do a little lightning round, let our listeners get to know you in a fun way. So, uh, Steve, why don't you lead our lightning round and just kind of ask as many of these as you'd like, and then I'll ask the closing question. Dr. Lowry, what is your favorite music genre? Uh, you'll be a little surprised, but I really like Southern gospel. Uh, you know, that goes all the way back to Bill Gaither and a whole lot of groups that in the South, you Californians wouldn't understand this, but in the <laughs> South, that was a big deal for decades. And uh, they still make tremendous music. Uh, and because we're in Nashville, uh, we've developed some great friendships with a lot of people in that genre. And uh, so a, a wonderful night for me is a night with the Gaither Vocal Band. Hmm. Okay. You'll have to go wow. figure out what I would not is. have expected that. <laughs> but yeah. you'll figure out the Gaither Vocal You'll love them. I can get my toe tapping to some okay. good Gaither. You... <laughs> okay. So you're in Nashville. What would you prefer to do for a vacation? Go to the beach or go to the mountains? Uh, probably the beach. Love the mountains, but uh, uh, there's something about the ocean. Uh, we we uh, kept a little place in Santa Barbara, and every now and then we get out there, and I mean little. It's a small little place, but uh, to sit there and watch the waves come in, there's just something about that that's different than almost anything else in nature. Okay. Last question I'll give you. Uh, what are some of your all-time favorite movies? I had a moment just a few weeks ago where my grandson was over and I'm trying to figure out what to do. And I don't even know how this happened, but we decided to watch Field of Dreams together. Remember that mm. movie, The Baseball Park? Oh, classic. that's an awesome one. And yes, you know, yes. It was kind of a movie and I thought it was really good and he was had never seen it. So he was infatuated with it. And then we get to the end and uh, there's this moment where I don't know if he asked his dad or his dad asked him, but one of them said, you know, do you want to throw some balls? And uh, there was there was this reconciliation of this separation that had occurred. And and I just sat there on the couch and cried. And uh, my grandson looked at me and said, Granddad, you know, why are you crying? And I said, you know, someday you'll understand how precious that moment is. Oh, classic. Awesome movie. It's a great soundtrack, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, Randy, it blessed me a bit to, to hear that you, you've got, you know, some Nashville in you there with that Southern gospel music, but you still have that West Coast love for the beach because you're missed out here on the West Coast. Even though you've been gone for a number of years, you sure blessed the churches out here in California and you blessed Pepperdine. So well, we miss you out this way, but know you're a blessing out that way. And, and you have blessed our listeners by being with us today. We hope you'll come back at some point in the future. Sure and will. And thank you so much. If I were to come out, if Steve and I were to meet you in Nashville and uh, take you out for a cup of coffee, our, our motto on Common Ground Unity is unity begins with a cup of coffee. Um, in other words, it's relational. It starts there. How do you take your coffee? Uh, I take it uh, just with a little bit of cream. I don't need all the fancy stuff, uh, but a good cup of coffee, a little bit of cream. I'd probably take you to a place called The Well. Have you mm. heard of The Well? It's a, a group of Lipscomb students who actually decided that uh, 
they would start a coffee house and give all the profits to drilling wells in Africa. Oh, that's they terrific. They have several locations wow. and uh, their, uh, uh, their missionary gift uh, and their ability to serve good coffee have gone together very well. I think, Stephen, I'd love to join you there at some point. And I take my coffee, which is a little bit of cream, so uh, we could have fellowship around the fruit of the bean right there and, and be on the same page. Well, if you're ever in Nashville, give me a we'll call. We'll go. Well, I, I'll probably throw in some barbecue too. Oh, that's uh, you're. You, I'm in. <laughs> I am in. Uh, Steve, it has been great to have you co-hosting today, and uh, just a, a delight to have you with us. And and I hope you'll do this again with me in the future. I will, and it's an honor. Thank you. Uh, we want to say to our listeners, we're going to be back uh, in a couple of weeks and have another in our series on healthy churches. So join back with us. Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity podcast. Please check out commongroundsunity.org to learn more about who we are. You can subscribe to the essays, join our Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. And please check out the gatherings page where you can connect with other unity-minded Christians in your area. If you want to volunteer or ask questions, please email john at commongroundsunity.org. And lastly, we need your help by donating to this ministry of reconciliation. Your donation is tax deductible. Links for donating are in the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless. And remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.